Last week, you guys, we began uh, reading and discussing an article written by Tim, Ke- Tim Keller entitled, uh, Forgiveness is Fading, what is it, Fading Forgiveness? Entitled, The Fading of Forgiveness. Um, and if you weren't here, or even if you were, Google that right now. Let's pull it up on your phone. I want you guys to be able to kind of follow along a little bit. So Google Tim Keller, The Fading of Forgiveness. Right, it'd be helpful if you guys can see what we're looking at. Uh, I think this is a really insightful article. If you didn't read it over the week, then I'd encourage you to read it this week. Read it today, even. Um, he gives great insights into and a really pretty cru- crucial issues going on very much right now in our culture. And essentially, he's making the case for why forgiveness is somewhat fallen out of vogue in our culture at this moment. He gave two big reasons that we discussed last week. And does anybody remember what they are? Why has forgiveness begun to fade? Yeah, Don? The first one is an inward turning. Uh, instead of how can I connect with, with community, uh, there's this all about me and I, I create my own reality. That's right. So forgiveness, if, if you were to organize where does forgiveness fit, it really has enormous value in, in, creating, in, in uh, allowing for the coherence of a community of people. Forgiveness is necessary for society to, to exist. But if you don't really care so much about community, if really what you just care about is the individual, the I, I, me, me, well then forgiveness is obviously less, um, has less currency in that moment. And that tends to be our, our, as we've turned inward, we've left the value of community. And so we're more willing to abandon or at least not fight for the things that foster community, such as forgiveness. That's one. You may remember the second reason? Second thing that he talks about, Kelly Sue? Was it um, this kind of weird honor and applause that we give to victims? Yes. There's a victim that somehow there's an elevation in status when you are. That's right. So, vi- so victimhood has become, in some ways, a new um, honorific. You know, it's like there's more virtue, more honor, more uh, value attached to people who are victims. And as Keller frames it out, is there's like this can exist in concentric rings. So if like you know the bullseye is the more um, victimized you are, the more honor you are due. Well, then a, an outer circle of that is the more that you come to the defense of victims, or and by the way, that's not a bad thing, or to the assault of victimizers, the more virtue that you have yourself. It's a way to, that you can kind of draft onto things and say, look how virtuous I am, because I am merciless towards wicked people. Right, and the more so at, at that point, mercilessness becomes a virtue rather than mercy. So long for a long time, we've seen mercy as a virtue. Now, mercilessness is a virtue because it allows us to jump on this train that puts victimhood at the center of all things. Right, Ellen? It's disconcerting. It's disconcerting. Yes, I agree. Absolutely, it is that this, that all these things, as these things are piling up, and we're realizing what's happening. The costs are really grave. Here's one thing that we don't think we read this paragraph last time. Um, If you're looking at the the document, it's right above where it says, no future without forgiveness. The last paragraph of the section, religion without grace. And he says this. I think this is so insightful. He says, when a society rejects the Christian account of who we are, it doesn't become less moralistic, but far more so because it retains an inchoate sense of justice but has no means of offering and receiving forgiveness. Okay, here's what that means. When we we reject the Christian worldview, which is basically what we're doing, 
we don't become less moralistic. We don't become less um, given to like jot and tittle obedience, just more so. But the, the, but the rules have shifted and we don't have any way to deal with the fact that none of us are just, none of us are moral, right? And then he says this, this is so interesting. The great moral crisis of our time is not, as many of my fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. That's really fascinating, right? I think if you had asked me before I read this article, what is the great moral crisis of our time, I probably would have said sexual licentiousness. But I think there's a pretty compelling case to be made that our great moral failing is that we're becoming a more vindictive people. He goes on and says, social media serves as a crack for, as crack, not a crack, as crack, as an addictive drug, for moralists. There is no high like the high you get from punishing malefactors. But like every addiction, this one suffers from the inexorable law of diminishing returns. And the mania for punishment will therefore get worse before it gets better. That's ominous, right? So if what we love, if the thing that like thrills us and delights us and satisfies us and gives us peace is punishing people, and if that desire is as insatiable as many of our desires are, then wow, where does that trend? As we be, are we growing? Are we merely a vindictive people or are we growing in vindictiveness? If in fact we are growing in vindictiveness, if we derive more pleasure from the extension of mercilessness, rather than mercy, then that's, that's an ominous, that puts us in a very dangerous place, okay? And so it's in that, kind of with that circumstance, that we are, so think, think about who we are. We are a sinful people across the board. It's true in the church, it's true outside the church. We're sinful people, and we want to live in community, or at least historically, we have wanted to live in community. One of the worst things you can do to somebody is to isolate them. But sinful people... We really struggle to live in community because it's in community that our sin plays itself out, right? It's where our petty grievances or our real grievances, our great grievances, tend to rub up against other people. And if we don't know, as a sinful people trying to rub up against each other and doing so in injurious ways, if we don't become adept, retain uh, um, or regain, retain or regain a competence and a willingness to show grace and mercy to the people that hurt us, if that's the case, if we don't do that, then society is going to unravel. And there's some fair bit of evidence that we're, we're down that path. So forgiveness, therefore, is an absolute necessity. And it's not, shouldn't surprise us that Jesus basically centered his life on this teaching. Um, for he knows all things and does all things well. But in a community where this thing that is an absolute necessity begins to be viewed as an evil to be avoided, as an evil to even be to be criticized, then this thing that that is a tool necessary for for human cohesion, if that's viewed instead as a tool that victim that oppressors use to maintain power over their victim, and therefore we jettison it, woe to us, woe to us, and that is basically what's happening right now. And therefore, well, so let me pause it. That's a lot. There's a lot of, a lot of ideas all strung together. Is that, do you follow the, the flow of the argument? Sinners need to be in community. But sinners in community are going are gonna to rub each other the wrong way. Sinners in community are going to have to learn how to forgive each other. And if the thing that we need most of all, forgiveness, is viewed as an evil rather than a good, we abandon it and society unravels. That's where we're at 
that's that's kind of the challenge that we're facing right now. Lily? Just for context, um, last week you, you put in the context of specific articles from well-known publications where people were vilifying the idea of it for here last week yeah so so if you if you haven't already and you do just Google on your phone Tim Keller the fading of forgiveness what you find is his article Keller does if you don't know Tim Keller he's he pastored a large church in Manhattan for a long time and he's very very good at when, he, when he's addressing he's always very mindful that he's not just addressing an audience of Christians he's always extremely conscious that he's speaking to a mixed audience of people across the spiritual spectrum. And for that reason, he's very, very intentional to source things, not just in the scriptures, but in just secular magazines. So he's constantly quoting um, things in the, in, the, in the broader community. And this is no exception to that. So you'll see um, he's, whether he's drawing from you know, secular philosophers or psychiatrists or whether he's, whether he's sourcing you know, just mainstream news media articles or, or you know, I don't know, Vogue magazine or something. He's constantly going to these main, mainline sources. So you'll find all these assertions that we're making are pretty well established to be true. Although I think even without that, you're hearing the same things, I think. I think your intuition is probably would confirm the things that he's, he's sourcing. So sure. Okay, so yeah. What did you say his name was? Tim, like my name. Tim Keller, K-E-L-L-E-R. Tim Keller, and the name of this article is The Fading of Forgiveness. That should, should pull it up for you. Okay, so here's the thing. If you accept all this, all this stuff that we put up, that, that was all basically a review of last week. If you accept that um, and you believe that it's true that we must not, it's crucial that we don't lose forgiveness as a cultural value or even as a skill set, as it were, um, that we need to retain that skill and we need to prioritize the valuation of it, then I think it's worth reading the second half of his article in which he basically gives Christians a tutorial on what forgiveness is. Because the, the world at large is not going to suddenly develop an expertise in forgiveness. They don't have access to the resources to do so. But we do. We do. If anybody on the face of the earth should be geniuses at forgiveness, it should be Christians. We worship a man whose dying words were, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right? This is absolutely central to Jesus' life and message. And if we are going to follow him, then we should, we should be wary of our own, the, the, um, the allure of vindictiveness. Well, if you, you know, you pull a knife, I pull a gun, right? We're gonna, that, that's a game that's, we're not immune to that game. And so we should be mindful of this, of the, of the cultural slide here that could catch us up in it. And we need to be in the scriptures to say, okay, Lord, forgiveness is a value. Where am I missing on this? What, how do I understand this? And so the second half of his article, what I want to look at today, he kind of unpacks some of that, um, that uh, a number of different claims. So if you go to this, where he says, no future without forgiveness He's going to source a bunch of folks, and then he's going to give a brief overview of these teachings. And you, if you skip through, you should see in bold headline, um, forgiveness in Christianity is a set of practices. All right, so find your, find your way there. And my thing, it's going to be a little bit more than halfway through. Forgiveness in Christianity is a set of practices. Now, when I say that, even before, if you read it already, maybe you know, but if not, you hear that statement. Forgiveness in Christianity is a set of practices what do you think he's setting that as opposite to? It's a set of practices as opposed to what? Okay, yeah, forgiveness. But not, don't, don't contrast the forgiveness, but contrast the, the idea that it's a set of practices. What was this over here? Feeling, right? And this is really important. And why, what, Lily, why is that important to say that forgiveness is not a feeling, rather 
it's a practice or a set of practices. You can't depend upon your feelings to, to lead you into righteousness. God gives us tools within which to practice what he intends for us. You can't rely on your feelings. Don't lean on your Right. Okay. So you can't, you, you can't, your feelings are, are so, I mean, sometimes you get lucky, but by and large, your feelings are not a faithful guide to what you ought to do. Right. Have you ever noticed this? Can you imagine what your, what the world would be like if everybody did just did what they felt like doing? If your emotions were sovereign over the world and they are far more influential than they ought to be, like what a train wreck we would have. Right. Okay. So yes, they're, they're unfaithful guide, but there's also another problem with our forgiveness. Kelly, do you want to say to that? Right. Okay. And that's what we mean. And so when we say that it's not a feeling, it's a set of practices. That's what that's what he's saying. And so, and I just said, what's wrong with forgiveness? I didn't mean that. I meant what's what is the what's the if forgiveness were a feeling, what would be the problem about that? You know what? You know why? What? It would never come. Okay. Watch this. Okay. If somebody's really really sad, and I say, be happy. <laughs> Do you have a lever? Can you just push the happy button? You know, like, is that, you know, it doesn't work. And so if, if, we're, if we're demanded to have an emotion, it's like, well, I, I don't know how to do that. I don't, I literally, I don't know how that works. And so to the extent that you tell me, if you tell me you need to forgive that person, I'm like, I don't know how. What that might betray is that you're telling me, feel great about their atrocity towards you. Uh, it's not a lever I can pull, right? So here's what he says. He says, forgiveness in Christianity is a set of practices, including practices of prayer and of community. It is not, therefore, primarily and originally an emotion. Forgiveness is granted before it is experienced, right? This is what, Ben, I think you were alluding to. Like, it may never come. It's granted before it's experienced. The practices can slowly shrink the internal anger over time, and that is a great good to be expected, but forgiveness is practiced before it is felt, not felt before it is practiced. That's something that by and large the world doesn't know. But we can show them. We can model that. And then what we, what we can find, and you may have found this yourself, is that the emotion of forgiveness, the feeling of like peace that might come, it may come. But as he acknowledges, he says it comes, uh, so it can slowly shrink the internal anger over time. It's not binary. Boom, boom. And now I just feel better. We grow. It's like everything else, right? We, we grow into it. And it's a practice. We do it. And we do it again. And I forgive you and I make a decision to forgive you. And then I find myself a week later having an imaginary fight with you in my head. Have you ever done that? Do you have imaginary fights with people? Are you brilliant? Right? And then you realize, ah, I have forgiven this. And I choose to walk in that and to not not feed that voice. Okay, so number one, it's a set of practices rather than an emotion. And number two, look at this. He says, forgiveness is always a form of voluntary suffering that brings about a greater good. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week. Um, forgiveness, do you remember, remember the definition that we offered? Of, I don't think it was from the article, although he, this is the closest he gets to it, of what forgiveness is. Do you remember this idea about reflecting consequence? This is, this is a really important idea that is really, that I think Christians just need to know this. So here's how things work. Here's how things normally work. This is what he's going to allude to, is when somebody does something bad to me, I don't want to, I think I was picking on somebody. Who was I picking on? Somebody was sitting over here, if you remember this illustration. Who was it? Oh, yeah, it was Chad Young. Yeah, it was Chad Young. I was giving Chad a hard time, okay? So now it's Lois. Okay, so, so Lois, right, you do something mean to me, 
I don't want to suffer for your bad actions. I want you to suffer for your bad actions. I want whatever evil you cast at me, I just want to like Wonder Woman bracelet it back at you. Bam, and it goes back to you, and I'm good, right? That's, the very, that's, the, that's, the, that's how we feel about things. You do something bad, you should suffer. I don't want to suffer. And in forgiveness, you necessarily are saying, I accept the consequences of the bad thing that you did, and I'm not going to try to reflect it back at you. Okay? You know, does that make sense? That should have some insight. When you, when you consider Jesus on the cross, what he was doing is he was voluntarily absorbing into himself the negative consequences of the things that we did. Forgiveness essentially has in it a willingness to embrace consequences of someone else's sin without demanding that they pay for it. If you, if you hit my car with a hammer, I want you to pay for it. I don't want to pay for it. I want you, you, you're the guy with a hammer. You pay for it. I want to bounce it back at you. Forgiveness says, you blew it, I'll buy it. Okay? Now, with all that understanding, here's what he says. Forgiveness is always a form of voluntary suffering, which right there, you can understand why we don't like it very much, right? Voluntary suffering. Who on earth likes that? Forgiveness is always a form of voluntary suffering that brings about a greater good. When you are wronged, the perpetrator owes you. It may be literal and financial, but in any case, he or she has wrongfully robbed you of some good, whether reputation, relationship, health, or something else. To forgive is to deny oneself revenge. It is a commitment not to try to exact repayment from them by inflicting on them the things they did to you. Therefore, and hear this, like reckon with this, therefore, Forgiveness is always costly to the forgiver. But the prophets, at least within your heart, and at best in the restoration of a relationship, outweighs the cost. Okay? Does that make sense? To forgive oneself is to deny revenge. It is a commitment not to exact repayment by inflicting on them the things that they did to you. It is always costly to the forgiver. Which is why we hate it. Because who wants to pay for somebody else's wrong? Right? So when you find yourself in a situation, if this, something happens to you this week, next week, next month, next year, and you have the opportunity to forgive it, but you just run the math and say, yeah, 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 but hang on a second. If I forgive them, then I'm the one paying the bill, and they're not. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we were talking about. That, that is the thing. The very thing that you're going to find yourself re re retreating from, because this is so bad, was the point all along. It's, it's the very nature of the thing. Right? Yeah, Rita? One of the things that helped me understand forgiveness and have peace with it is to, uh, the, the little illustration of, um, you know, two families living next door to each other. Um, my child goes next door and rips up all the tulips that just came up. And the person, the neighbor comes out of the house, the adult, and takes the little child and and yells at them and humiliates them and they're not old enough to. And, and I step out and say, if you have a problem with my child, you come to me and I take my child and put my child behind me so that I'm between the bad person that's assaulted my child and I'm the one that's gonna take care of it. And so it helped me when I was really wronged to just say, I'm the child. I belong to Jesus, and He can take care of it. 
because he runs everything anyway. And if I can just get to the point where I say, I trust you, Jesus, and if that person should never apologize, should never make things right, then I choose to forgive him by letting you decide whether he ever has to pay. Okay, so let me, let me replay that. So Rita, you're giving the illustration you've got, there's basically a couple different parties. You've got a kid who, do they genuinely tear up the flowers? Is this true? It's not a true thing. No, but in, in the story, though, does the kid actually damage the flowers? Okay, so the kid actually damages the flowers. You've got a neighbor who's unhappy about it, and then you've got a parent who's going to protect the, protect the child from this person, okay? Instead of the neighbor coming to the parent saying... Right, that's right, okay? So there's, a, there's actually multiple levels here, right? Because on the one hand, the kid has done something wrong and should pay for those flowers, right? So the, the, the angry neighbor, they have the right to say, hey, listen, children are you know, foolish and childish, and I'm just going to, like, buy some new flowers and be a gracious neighbor. They also have the op option to say, I'm going to be a just neighbor. And justice isn't bad, by the way. None of this, none of our conversation about forgiveness is that justice is bad, right? So they could absorb into themselves the cost of the flowers, or they could um, say, hey, listen, I need you to, this, I just planted these, you owe me 30 bucks, you know, or whatever that is, right? But the way, what they choose to do is neither just or mercy, but is, in fact, unjust, as I, if I understand it. And in the story, then, this unjust, unjust grown-up is using their greater position of power to terrorize a child. And we've left, we're not, not choosing mercy or justice, but some version of oppression. And now, kind of the justice flow is just reverse directions. And now the mom, the parent, has the opportunity to jump in and intervene and protect someone from, us, from some new sin. Because sin very often begets sin. And sometimes it begets a greater sin. Is that my understanding of the illustration all so far? Is that right? Okay, so then, <coughs> very moving. <coughs> and I swallowed my spit wrong. Um, but so, so as we, with, with kind of the two directions of it, you're, you're recognizing that really, whichever way the thing is flowing, Jesus is that parent. He is the one who, whether we are wrongly accused, right, he defends us. And when we are justly accused, he defends us. Right? And his forgiveness to us, what, what's so crazy about him is he didn't need to be a party in any of these transactions. Right? So if I, you know, I brutalize Jeff, like, what's that to Jesus? Like, what does he care? What is his problem? Well, his problem is that he loves Jeff. Right? And because he loves Jeff, he's going to jump in and intervene here. He might protect you from my evil, but then he might protect me. He might show grace and shower me with forgiveness, even though I was the one that was being a jerk, right? And so the, this opportunity to extend forgiveness, it flows, it flows in both directions at all times. Because sometimes we do wrong things and need to be, um, and, and we need grace and mercy. And then sometimes in response to that, we do wrong, and somebody else is evil, we do wrong things and need to be forgiven of that. Which is why in the community, it gets very hard to unsort. Who was the original bad guy here? The answer, it was you and it was me. And it's all of us because we're always responding. We, we are sinful people in a sinful world responding in a broken situation very, very often in ways that just kind of goes haywire. And so there's rarely the case that there's not the opportunity or the need to extend or, or to receive forgiveness. Right? Does that, does that all make sense? Okay, so now let's keep going. So what he's going to say is, Keller's going to make, this is where I disagree with him, by the way. I, I told you last week, I don't agree with everything that anybody says, including Keller, although I think he's brilliant. He says forgiveness... Forgiveness practices have an upward, inward, and outward aspect, and each is crucial. I'm going to go two for three on this. Sometimes three for three, but sometimes two for three. So let's talk about that. First of all, 
Let's see which one we disagree with, or at least which I disagree with. Number one is that forgiveness has an upward angle. He calls it embracing divine forgiveness. Listen to what he says, if you guys find this here. Forgiveness practices have an upward, inward, and outward aspect. Each is crucial. That line is in bold. He says, Christians live only by God's free forgiveness, and they know that God will eventually square all accounts. This means that Christians have no ultimate warrant to revenge, but have, have, number two, have insufficient knowledge to know what any individual actually deserves. And number three, we have the comfort of knowing that no one in the end will get away with anything. That's actually, that's a very helpful thing to like memorize those three points. Number one, we have no warrant to exact revenge. Number two, we're just not smart enough to know what what the situation requires. And number three, we have the comfort that nobody's going to get away with anything. I've I've taught before on the imprecatory psalms. Do you guys know what the imprecatory psalms are? Remember this? They're the ones that makes everybody very uncomfortable. They're these psalms of judgment. They're the ones that say, God, crush him. Like, you've been, you know, this guy is evil and you need to drop, you know, drop him. Take him out. Destroy him beneath your feet. This is just, I can't wait for the day that the wicked are destroyed. Okay? And we read those and we're like, um, I thought we were a people of mercy. Am I allowed to, am I allowed to pray that way? Can I be like, oh God, crush her beneath your heel, you know? It feels strange, okay? But do you remember, what is the point of the imprecatory Psalms? What do they mean? Why? They are absolutely necessary. You've got to have them. So don't downstream him as part of some immature, vindictive, vicious God that we no longer emulate because we're super sweet, nice Christians. Why do you need to have the imprecatory psalms? They reveal our nature. Okay, so they do. But is David sinful when he says these things? No, not at all. Why not? That's it. We are not a people that avoid justice. Our love of mercy does not mean that we hate justice, but we... Place it in the right hands, okay? God is just, and there will be, there will be an ultimate recompense of all things, which should both terrify you, right, and give you enormous comfort. Both of those things should be true. But if the Bible's message is, hey, listen, it's fine, it's fine, it's just fine, everything's fine, then you, you, you would rise up against that because it's not fine. And great evil has been done, maybe to you, okay? If you don't believe that God will one day be just, then you're like, well, then I better take care of it right now. And it would be impossible for you to be be a person who extends mercy. But if you recognize that in the final analysis, all accounts will be settled, that you're not nearly smart enough to do it, right? Then you're like, okay, I'll stay my hand. I'll just wait. Here's what he says. Here's how Keller frames this out. He says, Uh, So Christians don't have the right, the ability, or the need to bring God's judgment down on others. And every time we pray, Jesus tells us through the Lord's Prayer that if we're, we're not to immerse ourselves, that we are to immerse ourselves in the remembrance of our free forgiveness through the costly sacrifice of Jesus so that we can freely forgive others. And this is what we've seen in the great spiritual movements in the past that have addressed the injustice of the world. If you listen to the way Martin Luther, if you read a Martin Luther King speech, he's not saying, hey, everything's fine, it's all fine. He is entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. We can suffer in not, with nonviolence because, not only because Jesus modeled how we can do it, he resources us to do it, but because we know that the day is coming when all things will be made right.
And if you are in, this, this is perhaps a third reason. Keller gives us these two reasons we talked about that we're losing forgiveness as a culture because we're highly individualistic, right? So who cares if the community unravels? What do I care about that? All I care about is me. We have created victimhood as an honorific and we are gonna give extra points to those who are merciless. But a third reason is if we don't believe that God is real or that God is just or that the world to come will include a final establishment of justice, then we have to do it right now. I have to do it right now. And if I don't think, if I don't believe that God is real or just or orders all things, then I probably also have an exaggerated sense of my ability to do that. I actually saw what happened. There was language even after um, the, um, uh, Derek, how do you say his last name? Chauvin, Derek Chauvin, the, the George Floyd cop. What, Chauvin, am I saying that right? Chauvin, okay. Did you hear, there were, there were, you know, there were celebrities on Twitter saying, it's ridiculous that we're even having a trial. Can you imagine? What, that's, that is this. Like, the United States, we've got a pretty strong record of like having trials for things. And when we don't, when you have vigilante justice or mob justice, things spin out of control. But her presumption was, the, the author of this tweet, her presumption was that she is smart enough to know all things. We don't need juries. We don't need due process. We don't need jurisprudence. All we need is like just me and a gun, and we can take care of this right now right? We're not that smart. We're just not that knowledgeable. We got to let, we got to let, let, let things work out. And that's not an ultimate trust in the American, you know, court system, although we should have, we should, it's helpful if we trust that, but ultimately in the final court from which there will be no appeal, can we trust that? Do we wait on that? Does that make sense? Kim. I, I wonder if you can balance the psalms that you said are, you know, the prayers that make us uncomfortable yeah. with what Jesus said about, um, Pray for those who mistreat you. Bless those who curse. Yeah. So, so Jesus is going to say. Jesus says a lot of things, right? And and it is absolutely true that we, in our in our basic orientation, we who have been recipients of mercy, have very strong motive and very strong resources to extend mercy to others, right? So you, you'll get like the Apostle Paul, who's who is going to live out Jesus's language on that, probably as well as anybody who has ever lived. Right, he's going to travel land and sea. He's going to he's going to suffer, be shipwrecked, beaten, um, all for the sake of those that don't know Jesus. His life is a, is an emblem of of radical mercy to unbelieving sinners who are literally throwing rocks at him, trying to kill him, and he shows mercy. He does it over and over and over again. And Paul also writes, warn a divisive person once, warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You can maybe sure they're they're warped and simple they are self-condemned so there is a point where human beings so what we're our job is to do we are to extend mercy we are to show love we are to be ambassadors of the one who 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 embraced us in our rebellion amen and there are limits to the amount of abuse that we have to suffer before we just step back now it doesn't point paul doesn't say um when somebody is you know sinful and whatever hit him in the head with a rock his the answer is you step back and you leave room for the justice of God. So our options as Christians is to be agents of mercy, which is a legitimate option. It is our, it is our go-to, it is our native step because we are following Jesus who was the very embodiment of mercy. And then step two is to get out of the way and we step back and we allow the Lord to lead it. There's, never, there's not a step three where we step forward and turn ourselves into agents of justice. But we recognize and understand and are not embarrassed or disappointed that God is ultimately just and will be so in the world to come. Does that help? 
put them in sequence. Okay, so. Tim, is it better to say we're not agents of revenge? Um, yeah, okay, that, I think that is better. That, okay, that is, I would say that uncheckered. Yes, we are not agents of revenge. There is a place that God is, when I say we, what I, let me clarify this. So yes, we are not agents of, of revenge. Yes, that's excellent. There are some that are assigned the role to be agents of justice, right? So God has established the state to play in the role of justice. I am not. My job is not to go, I don't get to exact justice or revenge, right? I don't, I don't get to walk, I don't get to forcibly require something of you. But I could appeal to the state whom God has assigned to like, to clean up the mess. Is that good? All right, Zach. How do we balance that idea of forgiveness and not being an agent, agent of justice with the idea though that forgiveness and consequences aren't necessarily mutually exclusive? Yeah, great. That's yeah. Good. Even in the justice system that we do live in, we if we are wrong, we are to decide whether or not to press charges. Yes. So even though we do have this set, they don't act on their own, especially when the plight of being us is the one that gets decided. Yeah. Forgiveness and consequences, at least in my opinion, shouldn't be mutually exclusive. I think you're right, Zach. I think there's wisdom in that. And I'm not, I've never really understood when you have the option to not press charges. Like, you know, if somebody murders Kelly, I can't be like, that's ah, okay, you don't have to press charges. Like, there's not, it's not in my, it's not, right? I mean, it's, but I don't know what, but there's, there are sometimes that you can do that, and I don't understand what that is. But does, is that, is there an obvious rule to that? Like, what's the difference between, you can, where's, the, where's, where's Tom? How does that work? Herrick, do you know this, or you want to raise a different question? I was going to talk Okay, then, then, then hang on. Then I don't want to leave this quite yet. So, so certain areas of how this works, and maybe certain examples are different. But if there are acts of, like, say, like a sexual assault, you are allowed to decide whether they want to press charges against the person. Yeah, I don't know how that. I don't. That is. That's a little bit of a mystery to me to know that. But maybe that's beyond our particular moment right now. But we, you're absolutely right. You could forgive someone. There could be very different examples of words, and you shouldn't do where you can. It's just going to happen. Yeah, so the, the, Bible, the Bible is really strange about this, actually, in a way that almost all Christians are either unaware of or completely ignore. So check this out. So we, we do have the right, and it's okay. Paul, there are different times where Paul will demand his rights as a Roman citizen and give, and give the leadership all kinds of grief about it. When I've, the examples that I can think of of Paul doing that is always when it's for the benefit of others and not for the benefit of himself. He will always take the hit for himself, and then he will assert his rights when it benefits others, which is really pretty curious. What Paul says to Christians, this is so, do you know what Paul says about Christians suing Christians? He says, don't do it. He says, why not rather be wronged? Like, are you kidding me? I hate being wronged. Why not rather be cheated? Well, because I hate being cheated. But he's like, it is like an embarrassment. It is an embarrassment when Christians sue other Christians. He says, is there nobody in your church? Could you guys not work this out? Like, any idiot in your church should be able to solve this dispute. What are you doing dragging people before the Roman courts? It's a complete you know, obliteration of all that, we, all that we claim to value. You should, this is what Paul says, you should rather a Christian rip you off than you drag a Christian in, into a court to um, show the world kind of the infighting that we're having. That is radically challenging in a world where we're like, I don't want anybody ripping me off under any circumstances and I don't care who knows it, Right? Paul's, Paul's statement there is really pretty severe. So he would advocate at a pretty high level within the community of God that we would be far quicker to forgive than we are inclined to be, which is really challenging. Yeah, you want to jump on there, Sherry? Yeah, I think it's really important um, in circumstances where 
reporting the crime can protect others that could be abused or even sometimes protect the abuser because perhaps they need help. Yeah. You know, Tom's been in, and others in here in the prison where a lot of times the um, inmates will say, I would be dead if I hadn't come to prison. So there is something to be said about um, reporting crimes. You can it's still important to forgive that person, but reporting the crime holds that person accountable to not hurt someone else, but also sometimes gives them the help they need themselves. Yeah. And I just think specifically about the Josh Duggard situation where he sexually assaulted his sisters, and they reported it to the church and dealt with him in the church, but never went through the proper legal. That's a great observation. It's continued to, and I, I think the world sees that and says, that's what you call forgiveness? No. Forget forgiveness. So I think we do have a responsibility to, you know, seek proper justice. Not necessarily that I revenge, but that I do report the crime to protect others. I think that is a fantastic observation, and I'm so glad you added that to this dialogue here, because um, Christians that have, there are Christians that have used forgiveness as a way to, like, really just kind of conceal things that they might persist to enormous harm. So that's a that's a that's a fantastic point. I really appreciate you pointing it out. That's a and that's a very specific example of it going on. Okay, for the sake of the clock, go on to the next one. Inward. Here's the one. Here's the second one that I agree with. Granting inward forgiveness. Christians inwardly give up the desire to get even. To forgive is to give the perpetrator a gift they do not in any way deserve. Think about this. Okay, the whole point is that you don't deserve it. While the perpetrator has been sinfully unfair to you, you are now mercifully unfair to them. You give them something that is not fair. It's better than fair. It's mercy. This is the this is attitudinal forgiveness um, that, as Mark eleven twenty five shows, is something that you can do whether or not they have repented, right? So when your when your soul rejects like forgiveness because of it's it's not just again yes it's, it is unjust it's mercy and mercy is not it is better it's different than it's better than but it is different than justice. Okay, so we work through that. Here's the third one that I think is just and this is kind of what we're getting into a little bit here. The where I would quibble with him, and with Martin Luther King. He says, finally, the ultimate goal of forgiveness is a reconciled relationship. I would say that's true sometimes. It's true in your marriage, right? It, it is true sometimes, but it's not true in all times. Martin Luther King Jr. was right when he argued to say, I forgive you, but I don't want to have anything to do with you, is a contradiction in terms. You have not embraced your divine forgiveness nor granted inward forgiveness if you refuse a reconciled relationship. To refuse to begin work on a reforged trust relationship, something that takes a great deal of time and effort, is actually a way to get revenge. Okay? Now, I've already kind of flown my colors on this. I don't, I would not agree with that statement in full. There are, there's an aspect of it that I would. So, what's good about that statement? What do you, what do you find yourself in agreement with about that? Well, I mean, forgiveness to me is... Primarily, that is between God and I, and it takes one individual with God's help for forgiveness. So that's one. Yep. Reconciliation requires two, um, and I think it's in Cloud and Townsend Foundry book. He talks about, you know, there's, there's freedom in being able to let that go and forgive regardless of what they do. Yeah. And reconciliation is not always possible. Not always and 
if you've done truly to the best of your ability your part, reconciliation is not always going to be part of that. So, yeah. But that requires, you know, good faith and certain things on their part, and you're not you're not able to make that change in somebody. So when, when, what's the rule? Oh, we got a couple hands on this. I'll, I'll get you guys jump into this. Suzanne and then Herrick. Um, reconciliation involves the person accepting the forgiveness that you're offering. And if they won't accept it, you, know, you can, there's never going to be, I mean, she was saying it takes two people. You can never reconcile it. They cannot accept the gift that you Okay. So, so, so one time that you might not reconcile is when the other party refuses. That's one, that's one time that that might be the case. Herrick? So it goes back to when you were talking about the Psalms where, you know, you're praying for somebody else, God to handle it, take care of somebody else. But what we, I don't think we did get to was where Jesus says, pray for your enemies. You know, and I can quote the scripture, but basically it's in Matthew 5, 38 through 48 is where I'm referring to again. But that's the next step we can do. It's like we don't have to pray that God take vengeance on this person. We can pray the best way to take care of your enemy is to make them your friend. And Jesus quotes that as well. So if we can pray for our enemies, it helps us to forgive. If we keep praying for them and praying for them and praying for them, that doesn't mean we got to hang out with them and have a relationship with them every day like you're saying. Like we can, you know, like Paul was saying, you know, forgive once, forgive twice, and then, you know, leave them alone and don't hang out. That doesn't mean we have to stop praying. Sure. The, the spirit follow on them, and then you know, then maybe they can come back to you. And, you know, maybe it'll make things better. Yeah. Praying for them is the biggest thing. Yeah. So you remind me because whenever we're talking about forgiveness, one of the paragons of this in my mind is um, Corey Ten Boom and her, and, her, and her sister Betsy as well. If you ever read The Hiding Place or read stuff that Corey's written since then, we're talking about forgiveness at a supernatural level. Right, so she was she was interred in a in a in a German prison concentration camp, um, and you know subsequently forgave her her guards, jailers, torturers, call call them what you want. And so when, when I look when I, the things that I've seen in her life, I've seen her extend forgiveness at an absolute level of extremity. Right, so it's, it is possible. We do have the resources in Christ to show profound levels of love towards our enemies as Jesus is describing as you're quoting, okay? But there are nevertheless some circumstances in which reconciliation may not be possible nor, nor required of you. Do you want to speak to that? Um, yeah, I mean, if, if we use God's model as, as our model, which it seems to me is a fairly solid place to go, I mean, it starts with justification, with forgiveness, that you know, we're wiping the slate clean, but, but there is a reconciliation step there that God has engaged in with us that is clearly, it seems to me, something to be desired and to be pursued. And because it takes two, I mean, even Paul says, as much as it's possible. As far as it depends on you, yeah, that's right. Live in peace with all. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, even scripturally, there is a recognition that it doesn't just lie within our purview to make that happen. It's not, okay, I, was some, I wish we had more time on this. So here's, let me, I want to say one thing. Okay, I'll let you jump in here, and then I'm going to, and then I'm going to close this up. Go right ahead. Well, I mean, I just kind of was reading through the rest of the, what he spoke here in color of uh, his article. And I think 
that the takeaway I'm getting is that really that outward that outward expression of forgiveness uh, doesn't necessarily need to be an entirely restored relationship. It's really a, ma a matter of that inward working revealing itself in your outward engagement of that person. So like I've forgiven people in my life that have wronged me. And I have been, through prayer, willing to pray good things for them. It doesn't necessarily mean that my uh, I'm going to be a, a, a map for them to walk over me again or whatever the situation might occurred. But inside, the work that was accomplished on inside for forgiveness and my um, prayer for them, slowly nurturing a better outward uh, communication and relationship with them. It has changed what could have been a forever... Um, Distance, yeah. Uh, even went through forgiveness, but that outward expression does change if you practice it like he suggested. Yes. We can grow in that, and that our relationship really can be restored over time as trust is rebuilt. So here's, here's what I want to try to do is, by way of quick illustration. We've, I've made the claim that you need to obey the authorities, except when the authorities are compelling you to sin, but even when the authorities are compelling you to suffer. Right? Remember that paradigm? We've got to obey the authorities even if we have to suffer, but not when, not when they're compelling us to sin. In a similar way, in the way that it's, it's hard sometimes to tell between sin and suffering, or we conflate the two, or we feel like, yeah, I don't want to obey because of the suffering. I get all that, right? But you got to break those things apart. I will obey even if I have to suffer, but not if I have to sin. In a similar way, when it comes to this reconciliation, I think the word you want to use there is safety. You are not required to keep yourself in harm's way. If there is a relationship that is damaging, that is dangerous, you are allowed to step back. Okay, but you probably should be careful to be honest that you, it might not, it might be perfectly safe. You're just still mad, right? So be mindful. Are you being honest? Can you tell the difference between sin and suffering when it comes time to obey the government? And in a relationship, are you really accurately reading the loss of safety that you would, that you might have to deal with if you persist in that relationship? If it's really unsafe, I don't think you have, you have an obligation to reconcile. You have an obligation to forgive, but then you can step out of the way. Okay, here's the final thing, and then we're going to let you guys all go. Um, Miroslav Volv, who perhaps I should recognize, but I don't. I don't know who that is. He says this, and this sounds great to me. This is near the end of the article. He says, forgiveness flounders. Here's our re recap on the whole thing here. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of monstrous inhumanity into the sphere of shared humanity, and herself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. When one knows that the torturer will not eternally triumph over the victim, one is free to rediscover that person's humanity and imitate God's love for him. And when one knows that God's love is greater than all sin, one is free to see oneself and so rediscover one's own sinfulness. That's gold right there, right? This is the work. Can you do that double moving? That you move, move the one that you're withholding forgiveness from out of the sphere of the inhuman, move yourself into the sphere of the common sinner. Those two migrations can help resource you to do the thing that Jesus invites us to do, that we would be a community of forgiving people. Okay? It's a great article. I hope you'll read it and ponder it because it matters, and we'll get to work on our next thing, kind of preparing for 
Confirmation next week. Thanks.